There's a word in Korean, inyon. It means providence or fate. Do you believe in that? That's just something Koreans say to seduce someone. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You are so sweet. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for doing this. It's so generous. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Oh. You're... You are... Yeah. I'm Batman. Indy! Give him hell, Indiana Jones! Lots of people get lost in Saltburn. Oh, that's just giving me goosebumps. Is that so? Yes! Experts say... Megan, turn off. I thought we were having a conversation. You need to give us a fighting chance. We're gonna need strength. You got this, right? I know you don't. What's up, danger? Miles! Wanna get out of here? Oh! Win? So wait a minute. There's an elite crew with all the best spider people in it? Right. Who's the new guy? This is unbelievable. This fate is written. Shall we write yours too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. Welcome to our fight club. Josie is gonna start by showing you all how to throw a solid punch. Hello and welcome to the Movie Rockcast. I'm your host Rob Daniel and as always I am very happy to say I'm joined by my learned co-host Mr Rob Wallace. And as always it's a delight to be here and particularly today. And why is that? What are we talking about? Today is our roundup of 2023. It is. We will be going through what was hot and what was not and what was kind of lukewarm in the year of film in 2023. So... This is the one where we take a quirky look at the year and have various awards. And some of the awards are best film, best animated film, some of the more traditional awards. But you can also look forward to the worst film of the year, the most indulgent film of the year, the all sizzle and no steak award, the if less is more then think how much more more will be award and various things like that as well. Yeah, we've narrowed it down to maybe 30 or so categories. It's yes, only 75 more to go. <laughs> and we're not going to cut this in half either. This is going to be a five-hour episode when we punishingly just go through everything that happened in film this year. Yeah, we go through every single film I've seen this year. And the reason that's funny is because how many films have you seen so far? We are recording this on the 17th of December. How many films have you seen this year, Rob? 604. Yes. Okay, that's an odyssey. So we are going to give a little bit of a um, segment in this particular podcast to allow Rob to talk about his odyssey in movies. Before we get on to that, why did you decide to watch so many movies this year? Just something to do, innit, really? <laughs> no, said like a true millennial. <laughs> you're Gen Z. No, sorry. Said like a true Gen Z, but you're millennial. Stop that. Switch. Reverse. Wonka's not in my top ten of the year. Because I realised I, I certain gaps in my viewing, as of course there are for everyone, like blind spots. And then, you know, basically just watched a bunch of films and thought, can I keep this going? 
it wasn't possible to stay at the rate of the number of films I watched in January. Be... Yeah, in January you were doing like three or four a day or yeah, something. Yeah, I watched about 100 films. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that is quite a lot of movies. But we'll get on to that in just a bit. But it is nice when you think, okay, I'm going to close some of the gaps in my film knowledge. It is quite fun to do that sort of thing. Well, that's still to come. So should we, what should we open up with? What's a nice one to open up with? Nicest surprise award. Okay. I think it's like a positive, open it with a vibe of positivity. Absolutely, yes. So this is the film that you kind of thought, okay, I'll go and see this. And then you walked out having loved it. So what was your nicest surprise award movie of 2023? Well, I potentially have two. (laughs) Um, For different reasons. One of them was Rye Lane. Which I haven't seen. And you have seen many more films than I've seen this year, obviously. I've not made it to 200 this year yet. So there are some quite big gaps in my viewing. Rye Lane, everyone's told me to watch it. Why should I watch it? It's incredibly sharp and charming real brio to it and when I first saw it advertised I was like okay there are two versions this could be incredibly twee really cutesy and then I watched it on Disney Plus and it wasn't and it hit exactly the right note and it's nice that it's also set around Peckham and Brixton I know where all of this is in proximity to me and what is the story of Ray Lane? basically it's about a um, a very early 20s young black guy young, young black woman bump into each other they're both recovering from break from mutual breakups and it's essentially how they begin to fall for each other no so it's a love story yes and it's available on disney plus so starring david johnson and vivian apara directed by rain alan miller in a feature directorial debut cool okay yeah that is one that i do need to watch it's everyone says that it's really well judged it's absolutely spot on in terms of being a lovely film so what was your second one then my second one, somewhat different, was the Super Mario Brothers movie. Ah, that skirted this award for me. Yeah, we saw this earlier in the year. Why was that also the nicest surprise award? Because it was actually funny. And it was well judged and had things in there that grown-ups could enjoy. Instead of just being like a, a shameless cash-in. Mm. I'd watch another one of these. Which was not a thought I was necessarily expecting to have when I went in. Yeah, indeed, definitely. I thought this was a really nice film. I did not know until about a day before that we saw this film that it was not live action, that it was a cartoon. It's like, all right, okay. Because they had such success with live action previously. Yes, indeed. So if you want to listen to the episode we did on Super Mario Brothers, we also did the original film from the 90s, which starred Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo and was just terrible. And Dennis Hopper. and Dennis Hopper, yeah. This one, of course, stars Chris Pratt and Charlie... What's his name? Charlie Day. Day. Charlie Day, yeah. And is it, yeah, and is it also like Annie Taylor... Is it Annie Taylor-Joy and Jack Black? Yeah, so Jack Black plays the big bad in it and Annie Taylor-Joy plays the princess. I really like that film as well. I listened to some reviews of it that were quite down on the movie, saying that as fans of the games, they thought that it was a wasted opportunity or like a missed opportunity, that it didn't do enough with the potential that they could have had in there. I played Super Mario Brothers years and years ago and just like you thought it was really funny and a nice story and yeah, it was and it looked great. It was a really, really well animated movie. Yeah, that was a good one. How about you? Well, my nicest surprise award would go to Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Ah. Which Which uh, Yes, which actually would have been also a very I think I I had a good feeling about that going in. Yeah, I didn't. Um, and the trailer didn't do anything for me. And I only really saw it because the reviews were good. 
like everyone seemed to be surprised at how good it was. So I thought, okay, right, well, let's have a look at this then. And it was like, this is exactly how a blockbuster should be. It's funny and warm and clever and it moves along at a clip and it's not totally bogged down in things that you have to be a fan to know about, which is really impressive because it's Dungeons and Dragons, this thing that's been around for decades, quite niche in terms of role play gaming. Um, that's all based around very specific lore. Yeah, indeed. And again, listen to podcasts done by people who regularly D&D and they said, even though it takes some liberties with some of that law and some of the things you can and can't do in the game, it actually stuck quite close to it so that it didn't disappoint the fans. But as the poster said, this is no game, i.e. you don't have to know anything about this, please come and see our movie. Unfortunately, not enough people did. But I had such a great time with it. So you had Chris Pine. He was the kind of leader of this gang who were having to stop this darkness befalling the kingdom. I'll say something that you can potentially cut. Go on. In so far as it's both a spoiler for... Uh, a minor spoiler for the film itself and for my list. Uh, my favourite Bradley Cooper film this year. Oh, right. Yes, indeed. No, no, I think that's fine. It would also be my favourite Bradley Cooper film this year as well. He has a small role in this film. Haha. Uh-huh. That has a double meaning if you've seen the film. But you've got Michelle Rodriguez and you've got Sophia Lillis and Regé Jean Page and Hugh Grant is great in this movie. And is it Daisy Head who plays the witch? Yes, I think so. And she's just fantastic in it. And this was one of those, this just had a real feel of an old-fashioned blockbuster to me. And by old-fashioned, I mean early 90s. This reminded me of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Just a really good adventure movie sort of way it didn't have pretensions but it actually had enough heart that you cared about um, what was going on has one of the best chase action scenes of the year with Sophia Lillis who plays um, a shapeshifter and she has to escape from a place at one point and there's a lot of imagination going on in terms of how she's having to shift her shape to escape at various things uh, directed by uh, Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly Okay, so they were writers on Spider-Man Homecoming, that's right, and Horrible Bosses, but also did Game Night. And Game Night was a good movie. Yeah, that was a good one, this. Uh, and also, um, John, John Francis Daly was in Freaks and Geeks. Oh, okay, right. Which, is which a, makes uh, sense in the context of this. So why does that? Well, given that Dungeons & Dragons uh, has a role in the series. Right, okay, yes. So that was Nice Surprise Award, so what should we move on to next? Um... When are we going to do our top ten? Are we interspersing our top ten? Are we... I think let's save the top ten for the end. But we can introduce films that... Because if you have films that are in your top ten, then you can introduce them now, or you could hold it off for when we talk about it. The only reason I say that is because my number ten film of the year was Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Oh, wow, okay. Well, that's interesting. So little spoiler reward then. (laughs) Spoiler reward goes to Rob. Very interesting. Although that is a fine number ten movie. Let's go on to... Let's add some sound to go with this week. The Give It Up Now Award. So, do you have a Give It Up Now Award? I have a Give It Up Now Award. What's your Give It Up Now? My Give It Up Now Award goes to David Gordon Green and rebooting beloved horror franchises. That is a very good one. Because David Gordon Green, who brought back Halloween in 2018, was primarily before that known as a uh, comedy writer, comedy writer-director... Um, so he did things like did he do Your Highness and yes. Pineapple Express and stuff like that so kind of slacker stoner slacker stoner boorish comedies yeah yeah. and and the 2018 Halloween was great 
mm. was really, and then he made two increasingly dire sequels. Yeah. And then this year he adapted, well, did a sequel to uh, The Exorcist. Yeah. Uh, called The Exorcist Believer. And it's terrible. Because a bad Halloween film is at least just a bad slasher film. Although his uh, that might be even dubious for the two latter Halloween films that he did, um, Kills and Ends. Mm. After a certain point of subversion, you've just broken the genre. And unless you can put it back together in an interesting way, which I'd argue neither of those films does, it's a bit of a hiding to nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas a bad exorcist film, exorcism film, is just, again, nothing. Yeah. Because all of these tropes are so familiar to us now. It's like, if you want to see a better exorcism film, see The Pope's Exorcist. It's not great. It's better than The Exorcist Believer. You get to see Russell Crowe on a Vespa. <laughs> Which is better than anything in The Exorcist Believer. That was a film that the first 15, 20 minutes of that, when it wasn't an exorcist film, were quite good. But it seemed as if it was one of those films that had to kind of become an exorcist film, like it was originally intended not to be an exorcist film and then had to become an exorcist film and it just got grafted onto this story. And it, yeah, when it shifts into the age-old, cliched exorcist narrative, I just thought, we've seen all this before, done so much better than this. This also wins Best Comedy of the Year award in some ways. Not in terms of anything in the film, even though the film is laughable, it's not funny. What is funny is that Warner Brothers, no, sorry, Universal reportedly paid something like 400 million for this franchise. And it's like, well, that is hilarious because what made you possibly think it was worth that money? This is a franchise that's famously only ever had one great movie in it. And that was the first one. Though I'd argue it has at least two more good movies in it. Yeah, but films that made no money. Yeah. And have never they, really made And they money. kept making them, even after um, The Exorcist, the beginning, when they had to go back and reshoot the whole thing. Yes, <laughs> so they, they didn't have to go back. They chose to do that. And the version that they actually released cinematically, the one by Rennie Harlan, is weird. Especially if, you, if you've watched the Dominion version, mm. which is the original by Paul Schrader, because it's like... Same scenarios, some of the same actors, though most of the cast left when they went to reshoot. But it's like one of these, for all its flaws, has some sort of integrity with how it's trying to deal with the idea of faith. And the heart, but that's the trader one, and the Harlem one is just schlock. Yes, so for those who don't know, many, many years ago, early noughties, there was an Exodus film that was made by Paul Schrader. It was shelved and completely reshot by Rennie Harlan. Then the Schrader film got released as well as the Harlan film, and it was a total mess and just shows that when you make a perfect movie with your first movie you're on a hiding to nothing on every single other sequel you try to make and it's like well, where do you go from there and I don't know how Warner, um, how Universal think they're going because of course they bought it from Warner well, Brothers how they think they're going to recoup their 400 they're obviously going to team up Pazua with like the creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein yes they do. well yeah they could do like it does become like a, another big monster so Pazuzu versus Dracula I mean it can't be worse than Exodus Believer but apparently this is the first of a trilogy it's like no, it's not. It won't get made now because the film barely scraped 100 million around the world. Well, my Give It Up Now award goes to superhero movies. Just stop, guys. Just stop. And actually, they are kind of stopping, if only by dint of the strikes. So there's one Marvel film getting released next year, which is Daredevil 3, which is in some ways kind of a Marvel film, but not really what you expect from the MCU. That would be interesting to watch, but... We had a slew of superhero films this year, and they all underperformed. Even Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which did about 850 million around the world, still underperformed in terms of 
that didn't crack a billion when it's actually quite a beloved part of the MCU and even that couldn't crack a billion. But then you have disasters like The Flash and Blue Beetle and The Marvels, it has to be said, is going to be the first MCU film not to make 100 million in the US. And actually, I didn't think it was that bad, but uh, it just seemed to have really been a victim of the general fatigue, fatigue yeah. that there is now with superhero films and the MCU in particular because there's just so fucking much of it that people are thinking I don't know how to approach this now do I need to have seen any of the series what do I do with this well there's you know the, and there's still um, Aquaman The Lost Kingdom to come up before the end of the year which is a sequel to DC's highest grossing superhero film Aquaman's still I think the highest grossing oh is it alright because that made over a billion yeah and this one's been shunted back and shunted back because initially I think it was potentially going to end up going toe to toe with Avatar Yes, that's right. Yes, it was last year, yeah. Um, so they've moved that back a full year. And now I think the attitude, especially because they're essentially rebooting the um, the DCEU, now that uh, James Gunn's taking over, yeah, I think they're just kind of like, let's just get it out there. Let's just put it out, see what it does, and dependent on how it yeah. does is whether we keep Jason Momoa for any future stuff. Now that they've spent a year exploring the, pot, the tax opportunities of shelving it and have clearly come up. Yeah, thinking actually this could make more money if we don't release it. Yeah, we should have had an award for the best film you didn't see because they wouldn't release it, which presumably would go to that Wiley Coyote John Cena film. Oh, they're shopping that around at least. Yes, they are, yes. They'll probably end up on Amazon. What was that called again? And like Coyote versus Acme, something like? Yeah, superhero films, it was just like, I just, I just have enough of these. Uh, because I didn't see Ant-Man Quantum Mania, which everyone said is just a bit of a mess, including the director. But there is one that will be mentioned a bit later that... Uh, rose above all others and it rose above all others because it was just different because it has to be said I mean even Blue Beats which I haven't seen but everyone said is fine is just another Origins film right yeah yeah so how many more times are you going to tell this fucking story guys honestly a runner up actually for my Give It Up Now award is Folk Horror so I'm sorry but we have to put a stop on making folk horror movies because much like superhero films it's just the same thing over and over again. Ennis Men came out this year by your man? Uh, Mark Jenkins. Mark Jenkins. Who directed Bait. Yes. And Bait is a great movie. Everyone should see Bait. Ennis Men. Ugh. All these films normally set or look like they were made in the 70s. And they've always got that little kind of copyright. Yeah, on the opening credits. And it's like, this is all just affectation. It's all just pastiche. And it's all the same story. And it's all things that were being made in the 70s. There's very few new ideas in any of these folk horror films. Ennis Men, I thought, oh my god. Some of it looked great, but nothing new is being done with folk horror. The other one we saw was Starvaker, which we saw at the LFF at the London Film Festival. is isn't getting released until next October. And that was the Matt Smith and Morphid Clark movie that was set during the 70s and looked like it was made in the 70s and went through all the things about living in the countryside and there's something in the earth, there are old gods you don't know about and blah, 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 blah. And how is this going to change the family unit? What's this going to do to people? And it's like, this would all be very interesting if we hadn't seen it a million times before. And this folk horror boom has to stop now because it's just beginning to eat itself. And it also that apply, tends to apply to a lot of directors whose films I otherwise like because um, I mean Gareth Edward, Gareth Evans sorry, made Apostle from Netflix back in 2018 yep. last year um, Alex Garland made Men yep it tends to be it can be a bit of a, a bit of a stumbling block yeah you're right they do come a cropper because they've got nothing new to add to the genre so stop doing it guys so that was that one have DC got a film coming out next year 
Um, yes, they have one, uh, but it's not technically set in the DCEU. Okay. And it's a sequel to a film that, did, that made them a lot of money and got them a lot of prestige. Joker Folliedre. Yes, we need to see what they do with that. We weren't fans of the original Joker. We will probably end up seeing this one, even though it's like, this one's so bold and brave because it's, it's a musical. Yeah, that's where you go to when you want to be weird within a very, very safe mainstream area. So, not that I'm prejudging it, I am prejudging it, but we'll see. Inevitably. Apparently, apparently it's taking inspiration from one from the heart. And Why do something original when you can just take inspiration from, i.e. steal, from other films by better filmmakers? Yeah, indeed, yeah. Oh my God, that's a secret source. <laughs> but yeah, The Flash came out this year, didn't it? And that was rubbish. I mean, The Flash was just the weirdest movie ever anyway. But we have a whole episode on The Flash, so go listen to that one. Hear why we think The Flash is one of the weirdest films to be released within the superhero genre. Cool. Okay, then. So, moving on, what should we choose next? Worst film. Oh, okay. Go on, then. Worst film, and I actually opened my review of this. Brilliant. About, because I was quite scathing about it. Was Foe. Yeah, of course. <sighs> I have to admit, I was not as down on this film as you which I'm a little bit annoyed by because I watched it just thinking this is a mediocre movie but you fundamentally disapproved of this film on an elemental level which means that you had a much more interesting experience and much more visceral experience than I did. So very quickly, Foe is about um, a couple and it's set in about 30, 40 years from now and climate change means the world is coming to a bit of an end and we're all learning to live in space and Paul Mescal plays a guy who has been chosen to go into space to work on the construction of a space station to see if people can live in space. His wife is played by Saoirse Ronan and while he's gone a replicant of Mescal is going to live with her and it's basically them kind of getting ready for him to go into space and her kind of having to get used to the idea that a synthetic replicant of him is going to come and live with her and we see how their relationship kind of undulates as this date approaches. Not a bad idea for a movie but it is not done well. It is latter-day Malik. It is Afton Malik, but as I said, my reaction wasn't as visceral as yours, so I'm going to leave the reason why it's not a good film to you. I love sci-fi, and again, I'm going to crib my review on this. Crib away. There is perhaps no genre as primed for grand explorations of the human condition as science fiction. Not constrained by the limits of the world as it is, it's free to pose questions and imagine scenarios by which we might better understand ourselves. The only question I found myself asking after Foe is how it ever got made. Yeah. And it's based on a book. Presumably some people like the book. It's Garth Davis who... Did Lion. He did what, sorry? Lion. Yeah, the was... film with um, Dev Patel about the young boy who gets separated from his family. Yeah. And it's based, based on a true story and has to find his way back to them after many years using digital technology. Yeah, it was a good film, that. He also managed to wrestle The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to the screen after many, many attempts over the decades from different directors to try and do that. And while it was seen as good enough, I thought it was a successful attempt to bring that big sprawling story to the screen and keep it in, I think it was only about an hour and 50 minute movie. And I like that film. So yeah. I mean, Paul Mescal and Saoirse Ronan have both independently been 
in top films of the year for me. Paul Mescal was in it last year in After Sun. Mm. And Saoirse Ronan was in Little Women. Yeah, I really rate Saoirse Ronan. I think she's one of the great actors of the moment. And will watch anything that she's in. And we saw her on stage in Macbeth, which is one of my best experiences in the theatre. Because it was such an amazing production. She was so great as Lady Macbeth. And Paul Mescal, I think he's a very interesting actor. So this should have been good. But yeah, why wasn't it? I mean, to a degree, it's quite self-contained. It feels like the first draft, the first draft of a one-act play mm. that is longer than one act. Um, and at least, you know, if at least it had been a play, I'd have had the option to leave at the interval. It sets up so many motifs, and the second half of the film is just watching them knock those down and being like, is this the one they're going to end on? Oh, it's raining now. Is that, is that a good enough bit of symbolism? The performers are just marooned. There's a scene in it which, in which Mescal has a kind of rant and rave that is just embarrassing. Mm. I mean, like, it's so badly judged, it made me long... It was so excruciating, it made me long for the point where the film was boring. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is terrible, that moment, isn't it? It's one of those things where you think, are we accidentally watching the rehearsal footage where they're trying to find their character so they are going for peaks and lows to get into the truth of their character and then they will deliver a performance rather than what's it, what is a lot of rehearsal masturbation. No, this is just it, right, okay, right, this is, okay, this is a mess. And it, it really goes off the rails. I mean, the opening's actually pretty good. The opening 15 minutes, yeah, that's not bad. But um, it implodes. And some of the story shifts are quite predictable, it has to be said. So, yeah, crew from the end of my review. The saying goes that man's reach should exceed his grasp, but foe reaches for everything and grasps at nothing. Jeff Bezos may have gone into space, but his company Amazon, whose subsidiary MGM is set to dis- distribute foe, have made a film that detonated on the launch pad. <laughs> that about sums it up. Okay then, well my worst film of the year award goes to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I mean, it's funny how many of our friends liked this movie. One of our dear friends, who will remain nameless so as not to name and shame the guilty, (laughs) said this film had lots of heart. It's like, I literally don't know what film you saw. This was a cynical cash grab of a movie. It was Harrison Ford chasing one more hit. The story was so banal and introduced things that were supposed to be integral to the character that we'd never heard of before. The de-aging stuff at the beginning was just weird. I've seen worse made films than this this year. But this was the worst film because it was made for all the wrong reasons. It kind of shit over the legacy a bit. I'm no fan of The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but at least that had at least, I would say, half hour of prime Indiana Jones magic in it. This had nothing, just a few snatches here and there. And it also was very cynical in terms of what was motivating the character. As a I, just, I just hated it. As hated a compliment it. goes, it does feel like we're in the territory of say what you want about the tenets of national socialism. Yeah, but at least it was an like I just hated I hated this film. I hated why it had been made. I just thought, no, everything that is great about the first three movies and half hour of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is absent from this total cynical mess. The MacGuffin in it is about time and the ability mm-hmm. to go back and change time. And it could be a really interesting lens through which to look at, you know, growing old and regret. The film does nothing with it. No. It's mad. It's like, there's an open goal. Yeah. There are so many open goals that it misses. One of them is is that. Two is that it's like, well, this is a legacy call. So therefore, 
Why have you got analogues of your characters in these of the previous characters in the in this film? There's an analogue for Marion in the Phoebe Waller Bridge character. There's an analogue for Short Round in the I can't remember the lad's name, but there's like a little lad who joins the adventure as well. And uh, and also Kei Kwan is out there. Yeah, and it's like they must have He's out there doing stuff. I want to know if they thought, should we do reshoots and bring him in? Because, of course, K.A. Kwan won the Oscar for Best Point Actor for everything, everywhere, all at once. You didn't want to get Short Round back into this because he would have definitely have said yes. And I think he was uh, possibly busy doing season two of Loki, which, if earlier based on critical reception, was definitely the right choice. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, because I actually haven't seen that yet, but people do say that's a good one. Everything was wrong about this film. Yeah, including the fact that it's like, well, if you make this sort of film, you do have to give a bit of fan service. Is it brave to not deliver any fan service when, you, when you're delivering nothing else, including a script that is just shit? Or like weird sideways fan service. It's like, oh, here's Sulla for a minute. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or yeah. like, as you say, here's an analogue of a character, and it's like, I think you're doing fan service wrong. Mm. Everything was done wrong in that film. Rubbish. And it was James Mangold, right? Yeah. Who did Logan? Logan, one of the great closures of a character in blockbuster film history, where you know how to do it, you just didn't for this one. And luckily Disney have left that door closed and in no way inadvertently slightly cheapening the memory of it by bringing the character back. What do you mean? Hugh Jackman's in Deadpool 3. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, DJ. But that's that's fine because it's kind of like... I think That's I think a different Deadpool, thing. It's its own different thing. Yeah, Deadpool's kind of like... The, like a Christmas special or like a Halloween special of a series. They kind of stand over there. The only good thing about this film is that I think that it, because it's so flopped and you never want to see something fail, it just means that we won't get yet another Indiana Jones movie. And they might not even want to reboot it right now because it's like, well, Disney have had a string of flops this year and it seems as if no one wants to see Indiana Jones anymore. And if they do want to see it, then they'll go back and watch the good ones. Anyway, so yes. Wait, they still exist? Because I'm trying to think what the biggest disappointment film was, and I'm not sure that I... That would have been my biggest disappointment film. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. I'm not sure that I had a biggest disappointment film. Okay, then. Well, shall we go on to... Well, see, I must say, the next one I was going to do was My Mad as Arseholes. That was? The back, yes. Which was, and there's a whole film that kind of fits the criteria, but we may discuss, have to discuss whether or not it does. There's also just the babies scene from The Flash... Yeah, so the Mad as Souls Award, a film that is just kind of bonkers. So previous Mad as Souls films have been Lucy, Scarlett Johansson one, that was the first Mad as Souls. The Accountant. Uh, the Accountant. It's one of those things where the maybe sometimes they don't realise how mad their film is. Rules don't apply. That was a good Mad as Souls. So yes, so we have a, have a Mad as Souls scene for the first time. And it's the baby scene from The Flash. Yes, the flash, there's uh, been an explosion and a hospital's collapsing and all these um, baby... Well, what's, the, what's the term for them? Carriages, what they're what they called. Incubators, all these incubators. Yeah. Smash through the glass window of the collapsing building and all the babies are falling through the air and the flash has to zip around and get them and there are, like, you know, an acetylene torches on fire and it's about to burn one of the babies and there are needles and there are... Scalpels. And there's scalpels and there are... And the Flash basically has to zip around and save them. And it's like, it's a weird idea by itself. It's obviously happening in slow-mo. But also the CGI is terrible. I mean, mm. the CGI is terrible in The Flash throughout. Uh, the director, Andrews Machetti, who did the, the It films, says, oh no, that was like a stylistic choice. It's like, you, 
stylistically wanted your film to look bad. Yeah, it's bullshit. That is just bullshit. He's been a good soldier there. The Flash was a film that was riven with production issues from day one, and day one was years ago now. You can clearly see that they didn't just didn't have time to finish the rendering. I saw it was weird. They did a screening of the film that was an incomplete cut of the film. It basically just cut off the last two minutes of the film because they didn't want it to be leaked. There's a quite a funny surprise ending. That wasn't in the version I saw, but I watched it thinking, I am fascinated to see what this film looks like with all these effects completed. Then when we saw it a couple of weeks later, it was like, oh no, they were completed as far as all the filmmakers are concerned because none of these effects look any better. It was just that ending. And I just think that they ran out of time and or money. And that was that. They just thought, well, we just have to put this out. And that baby scene is weird because it's kind of edgy. And I thought, well, I should like this because you're kind of doing something a bit different and kind of edgier with the superhero thing. But it just seems misjudged on this occasion. And so, yeah, if I was going to do a Mad as Arseholes film, <laughs> can Big Shark be Mad as Arseholes? Can you give Mad as Arseholes to a Tommy Wiseau film? It feels a bit like cheating. I would say yes, you can. Um, and say so we definitely don't have time to discuss Big Shark. However, we do have an episode on it. So if you're so inclined... But yes, it's a new film by Tommy Wiseau, the maker, the auteur behind The Room. In my short, my pricey of it, it's, it's essentially somebody trying to improv Jaws. Yes. Yeah, that's perfect. Thing is, though, he is a visionary director. Because they always say visionary director Jack, Jack Snyder? Zack Snyder. It's like, well, how can he be a visionary director when most of his films are based on pre-existing films or books or comics? Hmm, okay. Whereas whatever you think of the quality of his films, they're typically a little bit bad. Tommy Wiseau... (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the kindest review he's ever had. I think it is. Tommy Wiseau always delivers the film he wanted to make. (laughs) I mean, we saw Big Shark at the Prince Charles. With Tommy Present. With Tommy Present. He gave, and again, go and listen to the Big Shark episode, but he gave quite a good introduction Q&A to the film, quite a bit of which is in that episode. I mean, it's a film you can only watch with an audience, right? Because it would be interminable to watch it on your own. But with an audience, it just gets giddy just how mad and wayward it is. And there's a song in it that you can learn immediately. And then they keep singing it to the point where it became audience participation movie. I mean, that's, there's a skill to doing that. And like singing it in chunks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like, it's pretty much chorus verse, chorus verse. No, not even, it's like, almost like just... They're, they're still going. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the guys, one of the actors involved in it, who's clearly trying to be a professional, has hostage eyes because he's trying to bring the whole thing back into control. Clearly just improvised around a very loose outline of what should happen in the scene. But it was really, I thought, well, there's a certain element of talent to that in terms of no one knew this song before this film started. Everyone now knows the words and is singing it. Nobody knew that, that scene before, that song before they started filming the scene. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, that's right. You can see they're trying to make it up as they go along. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, my Madness Arsehole's Award is not quite as um, singular as that. It's the Shudder film directed by Joe Lynch, Suitable Flesh, which uh, it is a film that is kind of like a lampoon of 90s erotic thrillers. And Heather Graham is a psychiatrist who falls in love with her much younger, but he's still an adult, but much younger patient but it turns out, oh, well, he might actually have a touch of 
of the demonic to him and it mixes in lots of different things like the Red Shoes Diaries and the Denzel Washington film Fallen is in there as well and there's lots of other things in there too. It's like, if you're just doing the thing, does that count as a lampoon? Because there's no real difference between this and, an, and a rubbish oh, 90s it plays it very thriller. straight. It does, but it's like, you're just doing a 90s erotic thriller and clearly Heather Graham said no nudity apart from one brief bit of nudity in one scene and that's all you're getting. <laughs> so it's kind of this thing where it's like, again, there's clearly some tension here in terms of how erotic this erotic thriller can be. Because I think that Joe Lynch is a very interesting director and he made a film called Mayhem with Stephen Ewan and Samara Weaving, which is a bit of a, a raid virus infects an office and these people have to battle their way out of an office. It's, it's really good fun. It's a good satire, very, very violent. It's a good horror film, but genuinely funny. So in my review, I kind of said, like, it's clear this guy can do great movies. Is he just choosing not to do them? He actually liked that review and followed me on Twitter when I was on Twitter. <laughs> Bless him. Because halfway through the review, I kind of say, but then suddenly this kind of has a momentum that builds up and becomes quite irresistible in terms of its of its lunacy. And the final 20 minutes just really do kind of pay off everything that's been building up to that point. To the point where you think, I would actually write a sequel to this. I think it'd be quite good if we had a sequel to one of these uh, to this film. In the same way that the um, like the Billy Piper fan club retweeted my review of Rare Beasts. Yes, it did. Not realizing that you'd given it a snarky, terrible review. I don't know for sure, but I think you got to read it thinking, "Oh, that's fair." <laughs> and he actually says he ends up liking it, so that's fine. But yeah, so that would be my one. Okay, then. So, well, as we're kind of around these sort of things with Big Shark and Suitable Flesh. Should we talk about which films win the Gore Awards? Yeah, for me, the film that won wins the Gore Award is actually a film I saw yesterday. Ooh, well, When Evil Lurks. Ah, very interesting, because that's runner-up for mine. And why is and what is it, and why is it the winner? It's a possession film. It is. Uh, essentially, there's a outbreak of possession in a small town in Argentina, and it's about how the local population deals or doesn't deal with it. There are some just really gnarly... Yeah, essentially everyone goes a bit mad, and violence ensues. It's a really interesting film because it kind of suggests that demonic possession is something a bit like COVID. We just have to live with this now. Because everyone seems to be aware that this is a thing that happens, and there are certain things that have to be done if someone does get possessed, and we just have to. And live there are with certain this. rules you have to follow, things to do and things not to do. Yeah, but of course, it's like people are always going to break the rules, and when the rules get broken, sometimes things go spectacularly wrong. And this had a number of gasp out loud moments for me. <laughs> it's like, oh, something very violent has just unexpectedly happened. Very, yeah, indeed, and it does have one moment where. Someone is hit by a moving vehicle. And after I'd watched the film, I went back and watched that sequence again and did it on a frame by frame because it's like, that is an amazing use of effects because there has to be like a digital rear projection on that shot. That can't be a real shot. That shot can't be a real shot. All of this looks photorealistic and it literally takes your breath away when it happens. It is tough. It's a film that doesn't cop out. Yeah, I really like When Evil Lurks. It's on Shudder, isn't it? Yes. Written and directed by Damien Mugner. So my gore award goes to Evil Dead Rise. And this is directed by Lee Cronin. 
Um, and actually stars Aussie actors. Uh, so there's Lily Sullivan and uh, Elisa Sutherland. Uh, sisters, it's all set in a tower block. Um, Elisa Sutherland, who was a model, and she has zero vanity for what happens to her in this film and how terrible she ends up looking in this movie. But so, so it's great on the uh, IMDb page that you're looking at for Evil Dead Rise. There's just a, a banner advert for Barbie. Oh, yes, there is. That's right. But yeah, so this is a kind of sequel to the remake of Evil Dead, which came out in 2013. But this one all takes place in a building and there are these kids that have to be protected by their aunt, who's a bit of a kind of, you don't want to get involved really in family matters, but finds that she has to when the Evil Dead take over the floor of this building. It is wild. It is very, very wet in terms of the amount of gore that is splashing around on screen. It actually has a quite a hard edge to it. It doesn't kind of cop out in terms of its rules about if you get possessed. No matter which character gets possessed, it's kind of like that's endgame for them. So, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed Evil Dead Rise and hopefully it won't be ten years before there's another Evil Dead film, but we'll see. It's not technically a possession film, but at that moment there's also a really nice bit of gore in Talk To Me. Yes, actually, yeah, that's right. That is a contender for best score as well. Uh, but I just think that the amount of it, and it just builds up to that bacchanalia of bloodletting at the end of Evil Dead Rise. In which case, is that is this a good cue for the, uh, if less is more, just think how much more more will be? Yes, indeed it is. So the award, if less is more, then just think how much more more will be. What's your one for this? John Wick, Chapter 4. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Great minds are thinking alike. That is also my winner of If Less Is More Than Think How Much More More Will Be. John Wick Chapter 4. The film that literally did not know when to stop. Yes, John Wick Chapter 4. All 169 minutes of it. This film, ugh. It's weird. I listened to the film cast and they went absolutely batshit crazy for this film. But in this country, it had a more lukewarm reception for the right reason. The fact that it's three hours long almost. And it just gets monotonous. There is so much action in this movie, but it's not particularly varied in terms of what's happening. It all tends to be just crunchy smackdowns and gunfights. And it just gets dull. It's like this would have had much more impact if it was an hour shorter, which it definitely would I mean, it's be. Keanu Reeves and Donnie Yen. And Sanada Hiroyuki is in it as well, and he's one of the great action stars of Japanese cinema. You've got Donnie Yen, who is a god of martial arts action movies, and Keanu Reeves, who is just such a watchable movie star. But it's, there's just so much action that goes on for so long that it's like, guys, you just need to know when to stop, I think. And this thing is like, I'm on board for silly, mysterious world building. You want to introduce Clancy Brown as a character called the Harbinger. Hmm. I'm all here for it. You know, Ian McShane, the late Lance Reddick. Yeah, indeed. Um, I mean, I, yeah, this is just reminding me we've lost Lance Reddick this year as well. Yeah, of course, because we've lost quite a few cherished stars. I mean, just this week we lost Andre Brower. That hit quite hard as someone who adores Brooklyn Nine-Nine and loves Captain Raymond Holt. That was a horrible one, that was. Yeah, it's tough on that, but um, who's the bad? Is it Alexander Skarsgård? Bill Skarsgård. Bill of course, um, Pennywise from it, <laughs> directed by Andy Muschietti, who did The Flash. It all ties in. Well, if, you talk, from... if you talk for long enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> I think that John Wick 4 proved that. If you shoot for long enough, then it all ties in. Anything you've got to say about John Wick 4? I mean, to tie this in with another award, 
It did actually have my favourite action sequence of the year in it. Oh, really? And this will tie into a wider discussion about cinema, which we'll touch on later. Maybe a bit of an easy one, but I love the stairs sequence. Yeah, it was okay, yeah. I mean, that might be partly because it's like, this is definitely the last action scene of the film because it's up there. Like, it has to be right. It has to be the final one. It was bold to invoke Sisyphus in that particular moment with that film. And it was funny when it all happened and what is the punchline to that particular sequence was very funny. It would have just had a bit more impact if this film was shorter, I think, because all of this is just going on for way too long. I actually thought the action scene that was all shot from above... With the dragon's breath gun. Yeah, I thought that was probably my favourite action scene in the film. And that was very good. I did like... I thought that was very good. It's interesting, actually, my favourite action scene of the year. I would say... I mean, that chase scene in Dungeons and Dragons, I think, is an action scene. And I really like the invention of that. If we're talking about more traditional action, I think that the end train scene in... Mission Impossible. Dead Reckoning was great. Properly great. The soon-to-be retitled Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning with no part one. Because they've said they're they're not calling the next one part two. (laughs) So I guess you don't want to make a sequel, an official sequel to a film that's flopped. At least one that kind of shares the name with. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? So have they said what they are calling it? Red Deckoning. Yeah. (laughs) Mission Impossible, please Tom, don't go. (laughs) Or why are these films not bigger than they are? Because I'm sorry, but they always deliver the goods and they should be bigger movies. I do like the Mission Impossible films. So speaking of Mission Impossible Day Reckoning Part 1, as it's listed on the Golden Globe site, the Golden Globes have a new award. And what is that award, Rob? The award is called The Prize to Cinematic and Box Office Achievement. So Cinematic and Box Office Achievement. Very interesting award. And the nominees are Barbie, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, John Wick Chapter 4, Mission Impossible, Oppenheimer, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and what are the last two, Rob? Uh, Taylor Swift, The Errors Tour, and the Super Mario Brothers movie. It's a weird award, this one. I think it's one of those where it's like we have to get some films that people like into these awards. Well, I think it's also they wanted to maybe get a bit more credibility in their other categories. So they've taken out some of the blockbusters, but they don't want to lose that cachet. So they are putting the blockbusters into another category, but they can just kind of go, it's the blockbuster award? The MTV Teen Kiss, you know, whatever it is. Like, you know, that is kind of the... Yeah, it's the best movie kiss of the year. (laughs) Yeah. But it seems weird. You've got eight films there. I think you could have had five and still had a great lineup Because Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, as we already mentioned, is one of those weird $850 million disappointments. It didn't get over a billion. Disney will not be happy with that. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 did about, was it just under 500 million around the world? Not a bad payday, but apparently cost over 300 million because of the COVID delays and just the ambition of the movie, stuff like that. So it did not make money. And really, if you're looking at the films there that probably made money, you've got Barbie, Oppenheimer and the Super Mario Brothers movie, which I think is going to be the second biggest film of the year now, isn't it? Super Mario Brothers after Barbie. So don't worry, I'm sure the industry will take all the right lessons from this. Yeah, it's toys and games, guys. It's all toys and games. Was it not invention and an imagination? No, toys and games. So yeah, so it just seems like a very odd award to have. And then to have two films in there that were seen as disappointments in terms of box office. I don't know. The Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Spoiler. Not in my top ten, but I did thoroughly enjoy it. Tom can do a good action movie. But yes, okay, so moving on to the Indulgence Award. Yes, the Indulgence Award. Now, is this the award that 
Was it an indulgence for you or was it an indulgence for the filmmaker or is the ambiguity of that? This is the the Zack Snyder Award for most indulgent movie. <laughs> for me, if it's not John Wick Chapter 4, would be Maestro. Which is one of my runners-up and I think that's a great choice. So why is Maestro the winner of the indulgence award? Maestro uh, directed and starring Bradley Cooper about uh, the American great American composer Leonard Bernstein especially in its first half, is so obsessed with being virtuosic. It's all these swooping shots and these whip pans and this and just this absolutely relentless energy. And I'm sure they'd go, oh, Bernstein was like this, but it's like, it's so airless. Yeah. It's so obsessive. And um, apparently Bradley Cooper as a director, you know, I've heard, doesn't say action. Apparently, like, he'll, he'll talk with somebody and then he'll literally walk into the shot, take a seat and off they go. They talked about, I turned a bit about him directing that, the um, conducting scene at Ely Cathedral. The friend of mine I was talking to at the time made exactly the same Steve Martin comparison that you did. Oh, wow. Exactly the same one. Yeah. And it's coming on to Netflix, I think, this week. The scene where Bradley Cooper is conducting an orchestra in a cathedral. He looks like Steve Martin circa 1978 to a distracting degree. (laughs) He is the spitting image of Steve Martin. I'm sorry, but he just is. So good for your friend. It's just weird how much he looks like Steve Martin doing his proper wild and crazy guy shtick. <laughs> um, and if we were defining it differently, actually, this is a film I'm going to... This is going to be a little reference to a film that's coming out next year. Can't be a, con- a contender for our best of the year list. But it's called The Taste of Things, previously known as The Potter Fu. Director, written and directed by uh, Tran An Hun, who's a Vietnamese-born French filmmaker, starring uh, Benoit Magimel and Juliette Binoche, and it's about it's set in the late nineteenth century. And it's about two people who are in a kitchen. He's a famous chef, and she works with him in. No, sorry, she's the chef, and he's the owner, but they work together in the kitchen. And it's just lots of it is the whole opening sequence is almost silent, but it's like a twenty-minute sequence of them just making amazing food. Right. Okay. <laughs> so if you're if you're really in terms of indulgence, it's like. Oh wow, this is up there with like Tampopo and you know, Jura Dreams of Sushi. This is like, you know, this is an amazing food film. And it's actually quite a nice, there's a lovely romance between the two of them at the heart of it, which I would suggest that maybe they should cut to a bit quicker. And, you know, a lot of the time it's them, inescapably them doing the cooking. Yeah. It's, okay. making, it's a film that's making me hungry thinking about it. Yeah. And that's called A Taste of Things. The Taste of Things are previously known as the Pot Oh, okay. And it played a little theft, but I didn't see it. <laughs> well, my actually, I have another runner-up for the Indulgence Award, which I haven't seen all of. You have, so you'll have to tell me if I'm being unfair. <laughs> Do you know what it is? No, no, it's just, it's just, it's just like I've got another runner-up for the Indulgence Award, and the list is like, is it this fucking podcast? <laughs> yes, I, yes. <laughs> I think I said it best when I said you've indulgent fuck. Okay, so Maestro is one of my runners-up. Bo is Afraid is my other runner-up. I got 20 minutes into Bo is Afraid recently and thought, no, 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 I can't watch this for three hours. It's the Joaquin Phoenix film. It's the other Joaquin Phoenix film. Of course, he was in Napoleon this year as well. It's like director and writer Ari Aster, who did Hereditary and Midsummer, is just putting all of his neuroses and anxiety onto screen via Joaquin Phoenix in a weird performance. I'm not the biggest fan of Ariasta, to be honest, and got 20 minutes in and thought, I just don't have time to spend three hours with this movie. I think it's an indulgent film, but I could be wrong. Do you, would you say I that? feel like Charlie Kaufman probably sent him a text after, you know, first seeing the film, be like, 
hey, Harry, you're right, buddy. A bit too much. Yeah, like, you know, this, as one neurotic to another, it's a bit, coming on a bit strong. Um, um, apparently, though, he did. He wrote this before Hereditary in uh-huh. a way that I kind of think that filmmakers, you know, who had that great unmade script shouldn't get to make it because yeah. it's probably not great. Yeah, indeed. I don't think that my most indulgent winner is that, but it has the feel of that. So my most indulgent film of the year award goes to Babylon. The Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, and Diego Calva. About the beginning of of Hollywood, really. Um, And Hollywood, at the end of the silent era, going into the sound era, directed by Damien Chazelle, who is quickly proving himself to be um, a bit of a... uh, Technically brilliant, but... Empty filmmaker, Mm. I think. And Whiplash, I still think, is a good film. Didn't think it was quite as good as when I first saw it, particularly after we did the episode on it. And it's like, all oh, right, actually, what you guys seem to think it's about is actually, I think, right and less interesting than what I thought it was about. La La Land is a film that is a confection that I enjoyed once, couldn't really go back to it and enjoy it again. First Man, good film, but cold and empty, I thought. And Babylon is a film that is overheated and empty. It's a big three-hour sprawling film doesn't really give anything about Hollywood that you don't know. It's, it just seemed like a mean-spirited film. Brad Pitt, I thought, was very good in it, but the writing was terrible. Margot Robbie was good despite having a terrible character. Diego Calver does his best as the audience anchor. Because it's a film that kind of tries to do lots of different things. It tries to do things around the sexual politics of the time. It tries to do things around the racial politics of the time, with Joe Benedepo as this brilliant musician who realises how much he has to compromise his integrity and who he is as a human being to be accepted by the Hollywood machine. But it all is horribly shot through with this modern perspective that means, I'm sorry, no, 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 this seems more like a film about now than about then. And I don't think that Damien Chazelle really has the maturity to make a film that can properly deal with the attitudes of the time. So you get this overheated mess that ultimately, again, like your three hours, it does suffer from the John Wick thing of like, just wrap it up, guys. guys, Wrap it up. I mean, yeah, Indiana Jones died a death, but this one just imploded. I would be interested, and it cost a lot. I think it was about 100 million it cost, something like that. The Wikipedia article says 78 to 80 million. 78 to 80 million. So you could get specific enough to say 78. Yes, indeed. Got a little hazy in that final 2 million. Even if that's true, you weren't getting much change out of 100 million. It didn't do anything. It was a big flop. I would be interested to see if Damien Chazelle ever gets a sizable budget again. And maybe he shouldn't. Maybe he'll make more interesting films if he has to rein it in a bit because this was just interminable. But is now a good point to park the awards and you can tell us about your little odyssey in film for the year. Yeah, I've watched some movies this year. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the main takeaway film was pretty good. <laughs> Did you set yourself any kind of criteria or were there any particular films that you really wanted to see that you ticked off this year? And a lot of it was kind of filling gaps in terms of missing missing Hitchcocks or the fact that I hadn't watched any of the rock, uh, any of the um, Rambo sequels, mm. and then just things on a whim. You know, I mean, I think I, I think I think it works out. I saw one hundred and seventy eight new releases. Right. So you that's re- films yeah. released in twenty twenty three. Yeah, quite a lot to choose a top ten from. Yeah, I think it just means my top ten is ultimately more valid than yours. I mean, that's. Well, do you know what? Actually, that's interesting because you have seen some films that I didn't get time to see. 
and there are some gaps in my list. I'm very happy with my top 10, but it's like there are some films I'm pretty sure would have made it in if I'd have seen it. So you saw the Rambo films, you also saw some John Woo films you hadn't seen before. Were there any kind of standout movies in the year where you thought, that's joining the pantheon of the best yeah, I've ever seen? In no particular order, I have a top, I have a, I have a top 10. Oh, God. Oh, sorry. It's, only the first one was in a particular order. Sherlock Holmes Jr., the Buster Keaton film. Is your number one? Is my number one. Just the extraordinary invention. It's, you know, I, I, I like the general. I like Robert Beckville Jr., but... Sherlock Holmes Jr. is just a gag machine. It's just that the plot is throwaway. The main body of the film is a dream sequence. So what's the basic story of the film? Basically, this projectionist wants to marry this girl, but he doesn't have the money for it. And then the guy who is his love rival is a blagger who sets him up and makes it look like he's stolen something. But he's also having this dream where he's a detective and he's Sherlock Holmes and the people multi-role in his dream. There's a sequence where he's just sweeping up litter and he finds this wallet with money in it. And he, but people come along crying and be like, oh, I've lost lost my money. And he's like, Man, he has to keep giving it away. And he ends up eventually making a loss from it. <laughs> um, he's like, oh, my lucky day. No, it's not. And there's just, there's the, obviously there's the amazing, quite famous sequence where he rides a bike in front of a train. Oh, he's moving kind of perpendicularly and the train's coming towards camera. And that's that brilliant look where he breaks the fourth wall. Because um, it was done for real. Yeah, because it was done for real. And it's, it's and amazing it's, stuff. And it's amazing. It's really smart and it's really funny and it's nonstop. Um, so there's that. Yeah, also on my list, Sleuth, which I'd never seen before. The um, Lawrence, yeah, the, the Lawrence Olivier, Michael Caine, oh. kind of battle of wits. Yes, indeed. Um, Based on a stage play, as Michael Caine said, the only film in which the entire cast was Oscar nominated. Mm. <laughs> and uh, actually, I've also got a very short worst films of the year list on which the remake Sleuth, two thousand seven, with Michael Caine and Jude Law appears. Yes, directed by Kenneth Branagh, right, and uh, adapted by Harold Pinter. Yeah. Who was on his way out at the time. Yeah, interesting one there. So what else is in your top uh, ten? Stop Making Sense. Which I haven't seen. The Talking Heads concert film directed by Jonathan Demme. It was fantastic. Saw that in the cinema. Uh, the Court Jester. The Danny Kay. But did a potion in the pill. I can't, I can't do that. I can't do the patter. Yes, indeed. The, uh, the potion... Of the motion of the potion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that, that, that's just incredibly funny. It's a big kind of Robin Hood spoof. Yeah. Great in Technicolor as well. That yes. Uh, a Belleville Rendezvous. The French animation. Which is very odd, and it's on Disney Plus, and I just watched it in airport, and I was like, this is really odd and charming and fun. I've never seen it myself, so let's give it a look. Uh, also on the list, and I can't believe it took me this long to watch it, given the filmmaker behind it, um, Margaret. Oh, right. By Kenneth Lonergan. Yeah. Which is a kind of epic drama, an epic domestic drama. It's about, I, I watched the extended cut, which is a little over three hours. Mm. It's basically Anna Paquin plays uh, this student who is inadvertently responsible for uh, a bus crash where, mm. where um, a, a pedestrian is killed. And it's kind of her guilt in dealing with that. But it's just incredibly mature, insightful filmmaking. A lot of it is just conversations in rooms. Yeah. But the cast includes Anna Paquin, John Renault, uh, Alison Janney, Matthew Broderick, Kieran Culkin, Mark Ruffalo, Matt Damon. And I was expecting to like it given how much I love Manchester by the Sea. And I wasn't disappointed. It's a great film that is also one of those films that had a very, very painful editing process around that film to actually get to the cinema. Kenneth Lonergan gave it to Martin Scorsese at one point saying, please, can you do something with this? I can't turn it into a releasable film. I really like Margaret. I think I saw the extended cut too. And it's one of those, it's a very loose film. Mm. I mean, there's not much in the way of like a big story. But his films tend to be like that. It's all about the characters. 
and he just happens to write brilliant characters so you enjoy hanging out with the characters and there is it does kind of build up to a certain crisis point and then a resolution but that's not really the point of it the point is to hang out with these characters and this particular character who's very interesting and is dealing with a crisis point in her life was also critically kind of written off a little bit so when I came out to watch it, I was thinking, well, I think this is one of the best films of the year. I don't know why this was so dismissed. I also don't know why he thought he couldn't turn this into a releasable film. But it's a fascinating story behind that. And yeah, on the topic of um, bus crashes, as a narrative point, uh, The Sweet Hereafter. I haven't seen that before. The, the Atom Graham film, which is weird because it was featured in... It was one of the films most prominently featured. It might have been the first film in one of the editions of A Thousand and One Films to See Before You Die. And I just remember it so clearly for my teenage years and just never got round to it. Yeah, that film, I love that film. That's one of my favourite films. It's also one of these things where, because you kept saying these films you hadn't seen before, like Hard Boiled, or now The Sweet Hereafter, it's like, oh, I would have so forced us to watch this film at one point if I had no idea that you hadn't seen it. Sweet Hereafter, I think, is just absolutely brilliant. Ian Home is so amazing in that film. I mean, he should have got the Oscar for it. Just that monologue when he's talking about his daughter, he has a terrible relationship with his daughter when he talks about... a drug addict, yeah. And- and yeah, this is a film that's all about, and kind of in the same way that Margaret is, it's about culpability and it's about who we blame and it's about, um, yeah, it's based on a book written by Russell Banks. Russell Banks, yeah. The book is brilliant too. It's a great adaptation of the book and the book is absolutely amazing. Also on the list, uh, To Be or Not To Be, the 1942 version directed by Ernst Lubitsch, which is a comedy about a uh, theatre troupe in Warsaw and how they essentially deal with the um, the rise of the Nazis, the invasion of, and uh, incredibly funny. It's um, Carol Lombard and Jack Benny, and the remake of it didn't make the list, the 1983 remake uh, by Mel Brooks, well, sorry, starring Mel Brooks, but that's also really good. Yeah, I haven't actually seen the remake. Yeah, To Be or Not To Be is a film that I need to watch again because it is one of the great screwball comedies and tonally just gets it spot on. It knows exactly how to deal with what was clearly a terrible catastrophe happening in Europe with the Nazis. It's very darkly comic. Yeah, it's just one of the great movies. Cool. Where are we? Yeah. Uh, we're on that. War, war. Yeah, so uh, uh, Sancho the Bailiff. Oh. Yeah, Kenzie Mizuguchi film. Yeah. Again, yeah, I saw it in the cinema. I saw it at the BFI. Tremendous. And yeah, also... Uh, a film that I, again, it was just a gap that I filled this year, and, I, and it's uh, by a director I can run hot and cold on, uh, Persona mm. by Bergman. Story's very simple, mm. but it's the kind of like, the breakdown of the identity and personality. And yeah, I, I watched that early in the year, not having, and that's only yeah, 84 minutes. Mm. I thought, you know, I can, watch any, I can watch a Bergman film, it's 84 minutes, Persona, yeah, it's regarded as pretty good. Yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really good as well. And Bergman actually, don't talk about it. So yeah, essentially it was my year of have I had a thought about watching a film? Then I'll watch the film. Am I going to watch all the Rocky sequels? No, all the um, all the Rambo sequels? Yes, I am. The worst film I saw this year, not released in 2023, was, going back to The Exorcist, The Devil and Father of Morth, which is William Freakin's documentary, quote-unquote, about an exorcism, performed by Father Gabriel, Gabriella Morth, the, uh, the late, who he died this year, who was actually the basis for Russell Crowe's character in The Pope's Exorcist. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. <laughs> So he died the same year as William Freakin, because of course yes, William Freakin yes. died this year as well, which is a real shame. Uh, yes, I think Freakin, yeah, this, The Devil and Father Morth is just intellectually dishonest, because Freakin, <laughs> it makes it clear that Freakin actually does, you know, he's, he's, he's devout and he actually does believe in exorcism. But there's just this woman they keep having to exercise, and it's like, 
if you have to do it so often, it's becoming routine. It's clearly not working. <laughs> and they're like, well, she's speaking Latin. Nobody could ever know Latin. It's like, yeah, admittedly, she's you know comes from an impoverished background, but you could probably pick up some pick Latin. Up some Latin. <laughs> and all there's a scene where they go inside a church and they're not allowed to film, and they're like, we saw some real freaky shit in there. I mean, like stuff that like you know they'll turn your hair white. But it's like, uh, and it's like, oh come on, you don't get to talk about stuff that happened off camera. It's not like narratively important stuff that happened off camera. It's just like, yeah, you know, full, full on head three, you know, head one eighty degrees, levitation, levitation, <laughs> you know. spider walking up the walls, all that stuff that you'd really want to see to believe any of this. That all just happened in there. Yeah, when you were talking about it, it's like this is a film by the guy who directed The Exorcist and basically set in stone how on screen possession looks. And then made a documentary where someone is just seeming to cosplay all of the things that happened in his film, The Exorcist. But he's saying, oh my God, this is a real exorcism and this is a real possession. But you're the guy that coined a lot of these things that she's doing. Do you not think that she might be maybe a bit hysterical or have some mental health issues and is channeling them through what is now just pop culture. Yes, I, I think they might have cut the interview that they did with one of the parents where, you know, speaking in Italian going, you should never have let her watch The Exorcist. Yeah, <laughs> it was a terrible idea. <laughs> terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, intellectually dishonest. It does sound like William Friedkin's either being disingenuous or is forcing himself to believe that he's seen something amazing. Um, but, it's like, but you're the guy that invented all this stuff, really. I mean, yes, it was in the book, but visually you're the guy that invented this stuff. Cool. Well, getting back to the awards, the All Sizzle No Steak Award. What would be your film that wins All Sizzle No Steak Award? My All Sizzle No Steak Award goes to Fool's Paradise, the directorial debut of Charlie Day. Ah, interesting. I am vaguely aware of this movie. What is this movie? It's a comedy about a mute who's released from a psychiatric institute and is immediately seized upon by this Hollywood producer because he happens to be an exact double of this uncooperative actor who's refusing to come out of this trailer and he essentially gets swept along in this Hollywood Bags to Riches story. There are things that are structured as gags in it. They've got the form of gags. They just don't have the content of gags. <laughs> and it's got a great cast. It's clearly like Charlie Day calling in all his favours. And it sounds like a remake of Bonefinger. Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely a touch of that. Although he, um, Charlie Day's definitely put himself always like a Chapter-esque character... And there's definitely kind of a bit of a bit of being there, yeah, with a cast including Charlie Day, Ken Young, Kate Beckinsale, Adrian Brody, Jason Sudeikis, Edie Falco, Jason Bateman, Common, Ray Liotta, and John Malkovich. Yeah, not a bad cast. <laughs> well, my all sizzle no steak award goes to Cocaine Bear. <gasps> Excellent choice. Uh, which was the film that had the trailer and the title that we all thought was going to be a great film. Is it Elizabeth Banks who did that? It was. Yeah. So she was the director of the movie. It stars Kerry Russell. Kerry Russell's great. It stars Ray Liotta, the dear departed Ray Liotta. And it was weirdly soft centre. It was this film that just, where it should have been wild and exploitation, it was just a bit dull and spent too much time on uninteresting character arcs and far less time on proper wild bear action. It had a couple of moments in it that were quite good, but ultimately it's one of those films where it's like, this did not live up to its promise at all. And sadly, actually to note it, Ray Liotta appears in both of our All Sizzle No Steak films. Oh, is he in Fool's Paradise as well? He's in Fool's Paradise as well. He's the producer. Uh, Yeah, it was a film that 
should have been much wilder than it was. It did have one moment where someone gets in the way of a bullet that did make me laugh out loud. But really the stuff with the bear just wasn't very good. I mean, it's based on a true story, but in real life the bear died, really. Yeah, it didn't go on, like, on a big rampage. No. And again, the bear didn't really go on, on a big rampage in this film either, so, yeah. I think, yeah, it was a moderately sized rampage. It's a film that after you've seen it, you immediately talk to someone and come up with things that would be much better to put in the film. It is the Expendables of Rampage and Bear films, because every single Expendables film, you talk afterwards about how it could have been much better and it wouldn't have been much more of a stretch to make it better. It just needed another rewrite. As anyway. I did, of course, with this year's Expendables 4. I think you mean Expendables. <laughs> <laughs> Rubbish titling, we will never let it go. You just look at other things I have, because I think we're just coming very close to revealing our top ten of the year. Oh no, we haven't done the social media award yet. So the social media award goes to, well for me, it goes to Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could be anything else, right? It's Barbenheimer. That thing where the audience seemed to just really love the fact that Barbie and Oppenheimer were getting released on the same day to wildly different films and it became this internet phenomenon that was something that was organically born out of people doing their own fan posters and things and Barbenheimer became this big thing. And then they tried to do it again with Saw 10 and Paw Patrol movie being released on the same day and say Saw But there's no audience crossover for those! (laughs) Saw Patrol, it's like... Just because it rhymes doesn't mean to say it's going to work at all. Saw 10 and Paw Patrol, you're not going to go from one to the other, are you? Whereas there were people going from Barbie to Oppenheimer or vice versa. And it became this wonderful moment. I mean, Saw Patrol is just a recipe for terrible parenting. Yeah. Sorry, my best action scene is not Mission Impossible, although that does get an honorary mention. Extraction 2. Extraction 2, the Chris Hemsworth film, went straight to Netflix has a 20-odd minute action sequence that looks like it's all done in one take. And even though, obviously, a lot of it is digital, it is very well done. It moves from a prison riot to a chase to a shootout to a huge action scene on a train. That is actually, sorry, that is the best action scene of the year. And we should also mention Barbie because it will be the biggest film of the year. Barbie was one of the most fun times I had in the cinema this year. As I said on the episode where we talked about it, I went to see it at the Odeon Shaftesbury Avenue, which is where I normally see films, see them after work. This was a 5.30 screening. A few days out, I thought, hmm, it's a lot busier than normal films I go to see at half past five. Even on a Friday, I'd better book a ticket now. It was a sellout when I went, and it was a proper sellout. Like, there wasn't a single screen uh, seat in the screen. And, yeah, it was really good to watch it with an audience. So it has to be said, uh, the median age was probably about 25. It was a largely female audience. And, uh, yeah, it was actually quite a nice experience to watch it there because they clearly were vibing with this movie and it was resonating quite a lot with them. There was one woman afterwards who said to her, it has to be said, quite bored-looking boyfriend. So well, it was a funny movie, mate, but she said that film was everything to me. <laughs> So I think that's the best review award of the year. That film was everything to me. Well, should we do some traditional awards before we get into our top tens? Best director, best actor, best actress. Will those give away at least some of it? You presumably give away at least some of the entries in our top tens. And it wouldn't give away the placement of it. That's true. Um, well, let's do... What do you want to do first? Let's start with best director. That's what I was going to say. Cool. So best director. Do you want to go first or shall I go first? You go first. 
So mine, predictably, although actually, mm, he had a wobble. He had a wobble with his last film, but he's now back on top. Christopher Nolan with Oppenheimer. Yes, absolutely. Christopher Nolan with Oppenheimer. He is. He has to be the best director. It'll be interesting to see if, if he wins the Oscar this time. When you talk about a visionary director, it's like... Yes, it was based on a book, but that is what a visionary director looks like. And Oppenheimer might appear in my top 10, so we'll talk more about it then. But uh, I thought that was a pretty flawlessly directed movie. But what would yours be? Christian Nolan with Oppenheimer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then let's dive into Best Actor. Who is your Best Actor of the Year? My Best Actor of the Year, uh, making sure that I'm pronouncing his name right, Barry Keaton and Saltburn. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. And why is that? Essentially because the film is built around him. It's a character study of somebody who just seems like a bit of an unassuming geek who's made it into Oxford University. But it becomes much darker and more Ripley-esque, or you know, Patricia Highsmithian, High mm. as he's kind of introduced to this, the, the, the creme de la creme of Saltburn. Of aristocracy. Of aristocracy and privilege. Yeah. I'm surprised that Saltburn's had... Mixed reviews, because I thought it was a really, really good film. Very funny. Yeah, I think it kind of tips its hand a little bit at the very end. I think that the ending... Very on the nose. On the nose, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, actually, I, I do think that what happens at the end is great. I think that the way that the film chooses to dramatise aspects of the ending is too on the nose. Mm. But I really had a good time with Saltburn. Well, my best actor would be Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer. He's not a movie star. But he is just a brilliant actor. And talk about having to command a movie. Playing someone who is not particularly likeable and is sometimes quite remote and hard to get a grasp on, which is one of the recurring things in the film that people are very frustrated with. What are you? What do you stand for exactly? To make that character human, not likeable, but human, I thought was a great performance. It was, I mean, he's never been anything more than a slim lad, but he lost weight in this film. One, I think, because Oppenheimer himself was was quite a gaunt figure, but it really does tie into the enormity of what he's actually creating in the film and the weapon of destruction that it is. Also, it means that his eyes become much, much more prominent and he does have those amazing eyes. So, yes, so Killian Murphy. And for Best Actress, who would you be? Uh, Best Actress, Natalie Portman in May-December. Ah, very interesting. Because mine is Julianne Moore in May-December. Oh, (laughs) As we talked about on the LFF podcast, it will be interesting to see if they both get actor nom, um, actress noms, or if Portman gets supporting and Julianne Moore gets lead, or vice versa. But yeah, why was it Natalie Portman for you? For me, it was Natalie Portman because she she's playing an actress in it, and there's always you know, a degree of, and there's a degree of meta commentary in that. But so much of it is kind of about her trying. As well, the film is about her trying to understand this character who's done pretty horrific thing. And essentially it's about choices and it's about how we choose to understand things. And the end scene of the film is one of my favourites of the year because it's such a thematic summary or like, you know, such a thematic encapsulation of what the film's about. Mm. And I just think Natalie Portman's tremendous because she's a very ambiguous character in herself. I think it's a tremendous performance and it's nice to see um, a great John Haynes film again. I don't think it's much of a spoiler to reveal that May December might appear in my list at some point. For me, it was Julianne Moore because she's playing someone who is a incredibly complicated character, I think. I mean, the story of the film is that decades before, she had a uh, sexual relationship with an underage boy. 
they had a child as a result of it, upon release from prison, they got married, and now a film is being made of her life, and Natalie Portman is playing that character. And it's kind of like a vanity-free performance because she is such a damaged character and it comes across sometimes in real hostility or a passive-aggressive cruelty that I thought this finally is Julianne Moore going to get an Oscar because she's just one of the great actors, I think, and never been in that role that has been the kind of favoured role of the year. So hopefully this year she'll get some Oscar love. Okay, then, well, shall we get into... <gasps> Drum roll. Our top tens of the year. Yes, well, I've already revealed my number ten, so what is your number ten? Well, should we do it in terms of ten to six? So we'll list our ten to six, then we'll do our five to yeah, two. Yeah, that's good. And then we'll do our ones, just so we're not kind of going on for another two hours, because I'm sure we could talk yeah. at length about each. Okay. Uh, do you want me to do my ten to six? Yes, you go first. Number ten is a film that I don't think you've seen this year. Um, it's called Dungeons and Dragons, Honor of My Thieves. <laughs> Obviously, we've talked about it already, but I thought, I want a blockbuster in here. You have to have a blockbuster in your list, I think, because they can be amongst the most joyous reasons going to the cinema. And yes, they're not going to be particularly deep, but when done well, mainstream blockbuster cinema can just be an absolute joy. And this film was an absolute joy. And it also has my funniest moment of the year award goes to this film, particularly um, specifically the scene with Hugh Grant and a cup of tea <laughs> that... I've bored Rob with a number of times this year because I just like saying it because it just makes me laugh to say that scene and that is I'm going to bleep that bit just because I want people to see it for themselves it is but it is funny anyway so that was my number 10 my number 9 is Lola and ah micro budget historical sci-fi Lola so this one I saw at Fright Fest last year, but it got released this year. It's a micro-budget film. Andrew Legg directed, um, I think it's his first film. It's about two sisters played by Emma Appleton and Stephanie Martini. In 1940, they build a machine called Lola that can receive radio and TV broadcasts from the future. And of course, in 1940, Britain has just declared war on Germany at the end of 1939, and they can see what's going to happen from these broadcasts. They think, well, actually, we can help the war effort here, can't we? And maybe bring this war to an end much sooner than it originally happened. But of course, when you're messing about with time, and there's a cause and effect on that, and this, I just thought, was a dazzling movie. And it just had some of the best sequences of the year, it's an alternate history film. When you see how things are changing because of what they're doing, it is quite astonishing. Some of the effects work in this, which I thought was like a lot of CGI, but the director at Fright Fest was saying, no, 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 um, we just got different shots and composited them. Very clever, the way that it creates false newsreel footage with that effect. Oh, I just loved it. I love Lola. So Lola, which I think is actually on BFI player now, so it's, and it's well worth having your free subscription to check out Lola, and it's about 75 minutes, so perfect. Number eight is The Night of the Twelfth, which also wins my best foreign language film of the year. Uh, this is Dominic Mole, based on a true account of a murder in France uh, that was never solved, and it opens up with that. But the whodunit aspect is kind of irrelevant. It's the kind of why done it. It's about this horrific attack on this woman who dies of her injuries and police detectives who are investigating and the effect that it has on them and also why it's happened and the society that has allowed this to happen and why, because of the society, there are a number of suspects. It's a really, really smart film. 
Okay, so number seven, Talk To Me. Ah. Which I only watched, actually, for the first time last week. And it kind of started off and I was like, okay, this is okay. And then very quickly, I was like, oh, this is what this is about. Because I kind of stayed away from reviews and I'd heard it was very good. I don't really know what it's about until I started watching it. And then it was like, ah, this is... It's this sort of film, and to spoil it, uh, but not really spoil it, it's kind of like a Ouija board film, or Ouija board film. It's uh, kind of, but it's a nice spin on that. It also adds in things about the impact of peer pressure, um, uh, social media, and just a good old-fashioned horror film as well. And it's a really interesting movie in terms of some of the characters in it, they're the heroes, but they're not doing things that are uh, that are heroic, sorry. They're doing things that are kind of messy and they're doing things for sometimes for the wrong reasons and sometimes it can be quite selfish in a way that I thought was quite refreshing. It's like, this is not a film in which you are always on board with all of the characters in this film, even though in a more traditional film, it would make the characterization much easier for you. It's an Aussie film. It's directed by Danny Philippou and Michael Philippou. The only actor in it that I recognised was Miranda Otto. She plays the mum of uh, this character called Jade, played by Alexandra Jensen. It's kind of two leads in the film. So you have Jade and you have Mia, played by Sophie Wilde. So they do these things. The reasons why they're doing these things is uh, for a rush. There's drug analogies in there and stuff like that as well. When things get out of control in this film, they get properly out of control. And there is, yes, it is a runner-up for Best Gore Award of the year. Uh, So Talk To Me was really good. And my number six goes to Bottoms. So Bottoms, I just, I've seen this film three times now. I think this, there's one other film I've seen as many times as this on my list. The Flash. The Flash. That's right, don't spoil it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Bottoms, which we talked about very briefly on the Napoleon episode, directed by Emma Zelligman, stars Rachel Sennett, who also did a film called Shiva Baby, which was in my top ten of the year when that came out, back in, I think, 2021, maybe, in this country. And, yeah, this one is just a give the overview plot synopsis. It's about two students who start a lesbian fight club to get with the hot cheerleaders that they're in love with. (laughs) That is actually a pretty good way to describe the film and the tone of the film. It's a really funny film. Even though it seems to be set in this weird time of like the late 90s, early noughties, but there's a reference to the Hunger Games in there, I think. And there's just this, it seems to be kind of like a slightly out of time film. It's got such a high gag rate. Uh, The characters in it are brilliant. It has actually quite a lot to say about student dynamics, about sexual politics, about um, threats against women, all wrapped up in this really quite nice high school comedy with just a really nice celebration of friendship as well and things like that. So it's broader than Shiva Baby, but every time I've seen it, I've just laughed and got more from it. So yeah, so Bottoms. So that would be my 10 to 6. So what about you? My 10 to 6, uh, my number 10, as discussed, is Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Which is a great choice. My number 9, Killers of the Flower Moon. Ah, the, yes. The new Mark Scorsese film. Yeah. Which uh, we have discussed in some detail before, but is essentially a uh, dramatisation of the Osage County murders of uh, which took place in the 1920s yeah. and were perpetrated by the white community in an effort to essentially seize the land rights and the oil money from the native community. Starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Lily Gladstone, Robert De Niro. It's a film, again, that it's inc- an uncomfortable watch because DiCaprio is the kind of ostensible protagonist who's playing Ernest Burkhardt, who's a bit of a, just a 
Piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, who very easily gets won round to the idea of basically murdering his wife and being complicit in the murder of her f- friends and family mm. by his uncle, um, Hale, who's played by King Hale, who's played by Rob De Niro. And yeah, Lily Gladstone has his wife and just a really ugly, uncomfortable complicity. It's a film that's, it's a, it's a long film. It's three plus hours, three and a half hours. Just under three and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. and it doesn't shy away from, again, the horrible racial resentment that led to this. And Scorsese and to a lesser extent Ridley Scott, they're at least not resting on their laurels. They are certain they're out there and they're making epics and they're making worthwhile movies. Uh, Napoleon did not make this list. No, I neither. <laughs> At number eight, which uh, is a film I've previously mentioned, Saltburn. Oh, lovely. It just, it's a film that stuck with me because it's just incredibly good fun. It's very dark social satire about the mores of the incredibly privileged. A very twisted psychological drama thriller with great performances. It's got some really out there scenes in it. And yeah, the performances are uniformly great, uh, including... Um, Jacob Elordi, Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, just to name, to name but a few. Yeah, written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who yeah. previously did Promising Young Woman. No, yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great one. That's not actually in my uh, top ten, I have to admit, but uh, do thoroughly recommend that people go and watch Saltburn very quickly. Uh, my number seven is, and again, this was, uh, for reasons previously discussed, part of a double bill, Barbie. Ah, uh-huh. did we? Yeah, we did an episode on Barbie, didn't we? Did we did indeed. Which is just incredibly smart and funny, and moving, and the car... I mean, it's, it's a film about Barbie. It's a film that, you know, again, I'm sure the industry will take all the right lessons away from it. Um, <laughs> it's also one of Brothers' biggest film ever. Yeah, ever, yeah. It smashed a billion. Yeah. Well, I think it's about 1.4. It's like... Yeah, it was obviously it was going to do some real money, but it became a phenomenon, didn't it? Yeah. Incredibly smart, and funny, and heartfelt, and there's things to say about... A lot, a lot to do about, about gender relationships... Margot Robbie is excellent, mm. as is uh, Ryan Gosling as Ken. And America Ferrara. Is... And America Ferrara as Gloria. Yeah. Who's the kind of real world, and her daughter, Ari- played by Ariana Greenblatt. It's also, shout out to, I need to get mentioned in, in here at some point, Shuti Gatwa, who plays one of the alternate Kens. Mm. The, the new doctor. You know, new doctor. Uh, but yeah, I laughed incredibly hard. Also found it quite moving. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was my number seven. And shout out to Greta Gerwig. And shout, uh, God, of course, shout out to Greta Gerwig. Who was was Little Woman the most recent one before this? Yeah, I think that was her wow. previous film that she directed. I mean, she's a fine director, it turns out. Because um, Little Women is oh, just such a lovely... and I mean, I have a poster of that film. I really, really like her adaptation of Little Women. But yeah, it's like, this is a very different film to Little Women. Just as successful, though, it's like... Well, actually, even more in terms of box office. Yes, and my number six is... And I'm actually checking what year this came out to make entirely sure. No, it definitely came out this year. Um, is Blue Jean. Ah, yes. Which is a British kind of uh, LGBTQ drama film uh, written and directed by Georgia Oakley, it's her directorial debut, and it's set in the late 80s and it follows a PE teacher called Jean. I think she's in Newcastle. And essentially she's gay and and she gets caught up in Section 28, which essentially prohibits any discussion of homosexuality In in schools. Yeah. And how that affects her life and how it affects her ability to have a, be open in her relationships. And it's a character study, but it's a, and obviously this really troubled, flawed individual struggling to come to terms with, to kind of, again, deal with having to be closeted. And yeah, and Rosa McEwen uh, is the lead in it, and she is excellent. And I think it's currently available on BFI Player? 
the other friends have really rated that film as well. Okay, so Ryan Lane and Blue Jean, okay, they're two of the ones that you mentioned that I really need to check out as soon as possible. Yeah, cool. and that's my six to ten. Okay, cool. So my number five is The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg. Oh god, uh, I forgot that came out this year. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think because I, I saw it last year, and I think my, my, my brain is... I think because it got nominated for all the Oscars last year. Yes. Yeah, so this is obviously... I think God, it's been a long year. It's been a long year. Well, you've watched 604 films? Eight? Over 600 films. Watch what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. So The Fablemans, yep, as we talked about on the episode that we did at the beginning of this year, kind of Steven Spielberg's biopic about himself as a young man... His teenage years, his troubled um, relationship with his family in terms of some of the secrets that his family has, um, his desire to be a filmmaker kind of goes up to the point where he's just on the cusp of becoming a professional director. Just loved it. It was one of those that at the beginning I thought, this is a bit TV movie and it's not that well directed for a film that is all about him celebrating his childhood wanting to be a filmmaker. And then it was like, no, no, actually this is very well directed the whole point of this is not he's not being flashy but he is doing that John Ford thing of like when John Ford was once asked well it's raining and we can't really shoot these amazing vistas for our westerns what are we going to shoot John Ford said we're going to shoot the most fascinating thing in the world the human face and this is a film of close-ups and of faces and reactions and this amazing cast of Paul Dano and Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen. And Gabriel LaBelle plays Sammy Fableman, who is the Spielberg surrogate in the film, and looks astonishingly like a young Steven Spielberg at the end of this film. It is uncanny how much he looks like him. You have Judd Hirsch in this as well. So you've got all these amazing... Julia Butters, who was so brilliant in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood many years ago. Uh, she plays his sister, uh, one of his sisters, it's just a really good, engrossing family drama. Very small scale and low key for a director who has made some of the biggest and most spectacular fantasy films. Yeah, kind of like E.T. but without the alien. And the alien here is like kind of just teenage angst. Um, really, really liked it. It's yeah, probably my favourite Spielberg for many, many years. But I think he's a he's a consistently interesting director. But this one I thought was was a yeah, it was five-star special. So that's that. Um, so number four is Tar. And Kate Blanchett would be the runner-up for my best actress of the year. This was a film... I found this film fascinating. I also thought it was just proper grown-up cinema. It's um, She plays a fictional... It has the feel of a biopic, but it's about a fictional character. She's a musical prodigy. She is a conductor of world renown. She's also a very, very difficult person. She is someone who has real skeletons in her closets in terms of her relationships and sometimes kind of inappropriate relationships with students, not in a May-December way, but, uh, but just in a way that she will sometimes abuse her power and her status. And it's a film that really talks about, can you separate the art from the artist? Is it one of those things where true artists are indulged way beyond um, how they should be, is that sometimes necessary for them to, to be a great artist? I think the film comes down and you know, says no, ultimately. But there's so much going on in here, and she is a proper character, and absolutely fascinating, not really likeable, but in terms of how 
music is created and how you will put together something and also conveying the passion of music and the joy of music. This is so much better than Maestro. It's so much, it just nails it so much more than Maestro does. It also gets into very hot topic discussions around abuse of power and status and privilege. And also, can you enjoy something done by someone who is a compromised person? And there's a great scene where she, where Tar, played by Kate Blanchett, has quite a fractious debate with her students, particularly one student who dismisses, I can't remember the name of the composer now, but one of the great composers who gets dismissed for being a cis white male. And she tries to say, but does that mean that you can't embrace the beauty of his work and the way that his work can stir the soul and that kind of stuff? And it's just full of things like that. The surrounding characters are absolutely brilliant as well. Shout out to the director. Todd Field, who has previously done In the Bedroom with Little Children, two other very, very good films with very difficult characters in them. But it's a film that's been very, very divisive. Not everyone likes it, but I... I didn't particularly. Yeah, and why not? I just... I watched it in a screener at home, and maybe it might be genuinely one of those ones I just wasn't in the mood for. I didn't... I felt like it was avoiding having the debate it wanted to have by making it a female lead. In what way? In terms of, like, if it had been a male lead, the discussion would have been, no, he's a monster. But that's the thing, I think. I think if you had made it a male lead... Then it would have been a different power dynamic. There would have been an additional... But it would have stopped at that. It would have stopped at, he's a monster, we can't actually get to the humanity of this person. Yeah. Um, if you make it a female lead, it's like, and this is, you know, this could be an inverted sexism, but this is just how it is, I'm afraid. It's like, there is more scope there to explore the character and the fact that she's a brilliant artist. And also, is she is a person, yeah, she's a character who's capable of, of compassion and of fragility and vulnerability, but is also someone who is a bully, can be dictatorial, can be very selfish, and can abuse her position. Yeah, this is a character to wrestle with, and I just thought it was fascinating to do that. Over two hours and 38 minutes, it's not a short film. It's the same length as, I think, Napoleon, but I found this more <laughs> thrilling than Napoleon, even though Napoleon's battle sequences are very good. Yeah, I don't think I've rewatched any films this year, so maybe I'll make an exception for Tar and go back and... I would recommend it. I've watched Bottoms three times, and... The next film on my list, number three, I've also watched three times. That, of course, is Megan. <laughs> oh, it had to be in there. It did have to be in there. I love and adore Megan. Because I love a great B-movie. The great B-movies always have some kind of social commentary in them. And Megan is all about screen addiction and grief and parental responsibility and work-life balance all wraps up in a Killer Doll movie <laughs> with, it has to be said, an absolutely irresistible villain in it. The best villain of the year in terms of, you know, like a fantasy setting. It's also quite short. It's a snappy film. I've seen the unrated cut as well as the PG-13 cut. The PG-13 cut has shots in it that I think should also be in the unrated cut, but aren't. So it's like one of those things where it's like there isn't a definitive cut, but I can just watch this film over and over again. It's also really funny. It's a very, very dark comedy. And it has that moment where the creator of Megan, uh, who is having to look after her niece. Yeah, sorry, if you, if you insist on calling it Expendables, you have to call it M3 gun for consistency. That's a very good point. It is, of course, M3 gun is how the film is spelt. And 
M3 Gun 2.0. As I said, it's only about 85 minutes. It's an hour and 42 minutes. It does not feel that. It just flies by. What a perfect film this is. <laughs> I'm going to bump it up to number one right now. <laughs> not really. But yes, Alison Williams, who I think was in Girls, is the inventor of Megan. And she's having to live with her niece after this event happens. And um, there's a point where she can turn Megan down when Megan won't stop talking. And I just think every parent in the world thought that would be such a handy thing to be able to do to my kid. <laughs> won't stop talking. Oh, turn you down. It could only be better if Megan was played as Welsh. Yes, it did. That's right. <laughs> Maybe for the sequel. Um, so written by James Wan, also written by um, Akela Cooper. And Akela Cooper wrote Malignant, a film that almost made it into my top 10 back in 2021. Uh, it was your Mad's Arseholes. It was my Mad's Arseholes, yes. And yeah, Malignant is a film that everyone should go and see. And Kayla Cooper apparently was not happy it was being made into a PG-13. It was originally going to be an R-rated film. Even the unrated cut is not particularly more gory. It just has a lot more swearing in it. So I actually think this is a film, it was still a 15 in this country, but the PG-13 cut, I think, is just a great film as well. Directed by Jared Johnston, who did... I did Housebound, which was a pretty good horror film, but Megan, M3 gun, I just loved it. And my number two is May December, which we talked about already. So what was your number five to two? My number five was Are You There God? It's Me Margaret. Ah, which I'm still halfway through and I'm really enjoying it and it probably would have got into my top ten if I'd been able to finish it, but I haven't yet. But why is it your number five? It's uh, an adaptation of the Judy Bloom book, written and well, adapted and directed by uh, Kelly Freeman Craig. And it's a, it's a coming of age story, and I'm always a bit of a sucker for a coming of age story. Uh, it's coming of age of uh, Margaret, yeah, and it's set in the 70s. And it's essentially about her struggle with her religious identity and puberty and moving to a new school. And Abby Ryder Fortson plays Margaret, and she's brilliant and absolutely amazing. It always sounds patronising to say child performance, but that just feels utterly authentic and it's funny and it's got Rachel McAdams playing the mum, a long-suffering mum, Barbara. Kathy Bates is the grandmother. Uh, Benny Safdie is the dad. I mean, yeah. Benny Safdie, again, is in two films on my top ten list this year. Oh, I see. <laughs> the, uh, as I'll shortly go into more detail on, this also has my funniest moment of the year, which I don't know, I don't think you've reached that point yet, but I've told you about this previously, which is when they're doing sex education in the gym and the PE teacher who's been forced to kind of introduce it and put the video on just completely bails. <laughs> no, no, no. He's basically like clambering over chairs to get out. That's <laughs> why no, I haven't got to that bit yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, my number four is May December. Oh, my number three is Oppenheimer. Ah, interesting. Uh, my number two is a film we haven't so far discussed, but the actor, well, the two actors from this, but this, the lead, was uh, in strong contention for my best actor, and it's Passages, uh, written and directed by Ari Sachs. Yeah. And it's initially about a, a couple, a gay couple living in Paris. Uh, there's Thomas, he's a filmmaker, he's very. Um, Fickle, mm. and he's got a very loving boyfriend played by Ben Whishaw, Martin, who says he's a printer. And at this party, I think it's a rap party. Toma meets uh, Agatha, who's a I think she's a teacher. She's played by Adele Exarchopoulos. Mm. Uh, I think she's probably still best known for Blue Is the Warmest Color. Oh, okay, right, yeah. And essentially, they embark on a rather impulsive relationship. Sorry, he, sorry, he's by. Yeah. And essentially, it's about him wanting to be in both those relationships at the same time, oh, and he's. Deeply flawed, often more than just unlikable. I mean, he's essentially, he's, you always end up feeling like he's the antagonist of the piece. Mm. 
But yeah, he's played by Franz Rogowski, and it's, it is very sexually explicit. As was Blue is the Warmest Colour, so does she just do films that are kind of like going to challenge the boundaries of what can be depicted in a mainstream film in terms of sexual content? And I think this probably technically counts as a foreign language film, given that a large portions of it are in French. But yeah, I thought it was it's a really challenging analysis of the you know, these relationships and that was my number my number two. Yeah, I do need to see that one. I, I believe it's on movie. Oh cool, brilliant. Oh wow, well, I do have access to that, so brilliant. Yeah. Well my number one, unsurprisingly, is Oppenheimer. It's funny that when Oppenheimer was coming out, because I think it announced this release date before Barbie, and as we talked about on the Oppenheimer episode, and this is all speculation, but Christopher Nolan used to be Warner Brothers' big director, their big house director. He had a falling out with Warner Brothers when during COVID, Warner Brothers said they were just going to start putting their films straight onto HBO Max, as it was then called, or I think it was called. And he said, no, these are big screen films and I don't think that you're supporting the artist. And he left Warner Brothers. Then suddenly Barbie comes out the same day as Oppenheimer and it seemed like a bit of a fuck you. That could be misinterpreting what happened, but I don't know anyway. Then... Barbenheimer becomes a thing and it has to be said I think Oppenheimer benefited more from Barbie than Barbie did yes but I can remember thinking no one's going to go and see Oppenheimer they're all going to go and see Barbie no one's going to go and see a three hour film about men inventing the atom bomb and of course there is also Olivia Thelby in there because there were also women involved in the Manhattan Project which the film does address and of course Emily Blunt who plays his wife. Yes. Kitty Oppenheimer. Yes, who gets, well, gets a couple of brilliant, but one particularly brilliant scene. She does, yeah. Yeah, so she's Kitty Oppenheimer, his wife. Yeah, so I thought, no one's going to go and see Oppenheimer. They're all going to go and see Barbie. It's kind of folly to release it in the summer. Um, it should be an autumn film. Oh, how wrong I can sometimes be about the art form I love. Because Oppenheimer comes out and it has big nuclear-powered legs. <laughs> it does. This three-hour R-rated movie about the invention of the atom bomb does $954-ish million around the world. It does almost a billion. And you can just see all the studios saying, just throw away the book. We have no idea what we're doing anymore. All of our superhero films have flopped. The big, you know, the Indiana Jones film has flopped. The Mission Impossible film was underperformed. This drama that's not based on any real existing IP that could be marketed in any way is not recognisable. It's a period film. There's no real action in it. Apart sections from, of it are in black and white. Sections of it are in black and white. It's almost exclusively yeah. all dialogue. There's a congressional committee scene in it. Yeah, it's a film that takes place over different timelines. You have to pay attention to what's going on. It demands the audience pays attention. It is not an easy film to watch, although I think if you're paying attention and it's hard not to with this film because I think it's so brilliant, that you will get a lot from it. And this becomes, I think, the third biggest film of the year after Barbie and um, Super Mario Brothers. Then it's Oppenheimer. I mean, who could predict that? And it's also one of those things where it was sold on Christopher Nolan. I think he's the one director, even more than Spielberg, because West Side Story flopped and the Fablemans didn't really do anything. But who can sell a film based on his name? He's the one director, I think, that can do that right now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what Greta Gerwig's next film does, because... I think yeah, she's, she's, doing she's doing Chronicles of Narnia, I think. But that is existing IP. But it'll be interesting to see what it does, because I think people will go and see the next film from the director of Barbie. Uh, that's presumably got to be a Christmas film. Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? Because there's a lot of snow in it. <laughs> there's yeah, no it's clue. Yeah, I guess it, I think she said, I think they confirmed that they're starting the language in the wardrobe. But after the wobble of Tenet, he then goes and does something that 
he, see, he seemed to realise he needed to freshen up a bit and he does this thing that still sticks with all of his preoccupations um, but does them in a really fresh way and what an amazing film it is. What a brilliantly acted film it is. I mean, you have this amazing cast. So Matt Damon, as you said, um, Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh, Kenneth Branagh and Robert Downey Jr., uh, or Benny Safdie, obviously. Jack Quaid's in it for like a couple of scenes. Olivia Thelby, forever Judge Anderson from Dread. She's brilliant. It's just a great movie. And I've watched it a couple of times now. I've got the 4K. Universal sold out of the 4K. <laughs> it's like they couldn't meet demand because, of course, all the studios are kind of insisting that physical media is dead and they want everything to be streaming. So I think so they can control how it exists much more. But Oppenheimer sold out at 4K and they're now having to press more because it sold out and it sold out really quickly. I just bought it. I thought, I, I, I can't wait for this to go into a sale. I just have to buy this one now because I want to watch it again. So, yeah, Oppenheimer. So, drum roll. <laughs> Rob Wallace's number one film of the year is... Past Lives. I thought it would be. <laughs> I have seen this one. I thoroughly liked it. But why is it your number one? Yeah, It's a romantic drama written and directed by a Canadian-Korean filmmaker called Celine Song. And it basically follows this um, this pair, uh, Na Young and Hae Song, who are, they grew up together in Seoul and they each other's first crushes but then now young emigrates to toronto and they lose they lose touch but then they pick up about like i think it's a decade later and get reacquainted and there's there's always this kind of chemistry between them and this will they won't they but essentially it's about the passage of time and this relationship that they're kind of not having and sorry and uh, now young who changes who's changed her name to nora uh, she gets married it's all, and it's essentially again. Yeah, it's about the relationship that this, this relationship that's not having. It's, it's kind of a, a missed connection, mm. and to what extent they're in each other's lives. And there's a real longing and beauty to the film. And both, um, I mean, Greta Lee as Nora and uh, Tia Yu as uh, Hae Sung, they're brilliant. It's an incredibly subtle, empathetic performances from both of them. And John Magaro as uh, uh, who the man she eventually marries, as Arthur, who gets a line, I think it's in the trailer, and I, I, a friend of mine had a real issue with this, thought it was a bit on the nose, but I go, yeah, he's like, if this was a film, I would be the villain. I would be the, the kind of American villain getting in the way of your love. Yeah. But the film doesn't do that. The film isn't that simplistic. The film doesn't say that, you know, but it's yeah, it's just a sense of what might have been and the potential. And there's a there's a um, a merry-go-round featured very prominently in a lot of the a lot of the marketing, which I've discovered is in Brooklyn. And it and, and, and I'm, I've got a big trip to America planned for next year, so I'm going to be in that vicinity. Anyway, so I'm going to make a point of going to the merry-go-round. You have to do that <laughs> and have a selfie taken. Yeah, yeah have, have a picture taken there. Have a solitary <laughs> selfie taken yeah, there, dude. But you should try and recreate the poster, but with just you. Yeah. In. It's like, there be someone else there. Um, so yeah, it's one of those really delicate films that's all about, you know, moments, which mm. tend to be the, the type of films that I like. Yeah, I guess like nice core. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gentle core. Like, no, yeah, some variation on that. And gentle core is a nice one, yeah. And yeah, I was absolutely won over by it. It was, it was a film that I, I saw at the picture house, I think, as a preview. So they had, had amazing buzz and I just kind of walked out floating on there. Yeah, that's a really, really nice film of the year to have. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you do an 11 to 20? No. I did. So I will quickly give my 11 to 20. I'm not going to go into any detail on this. So number 20, The Artifice Girl. Number 19, Eileen. Number 18, The Killer. Number 17, La Syndicaliste. Number 16, Saltburn. Number 15, Past Lives. Number 14, Women Talking. 
Number 13. God, that came out this year as well, didn't it? Blimey. It did. That's a good film, that. Number 13, The Killers of the Flower Moon. Number 12, Theatre Camp. A film like Bottoms that should have done much more than it did. It's such a lovely movie. Currently available on Disney Plus. Yes, it is. That's right. Number 11, Pearl, which is the Mia Goth prequel to X and is a wonderful evocation pastiche of those delirious kind of southern gothic films from the 1950s, 1960s. Written and directed by Tia West, is it? Ty West, Ty, yeah. Ty West. Um, and I think there's going to be a sequel to X coming out this year. Or next year, sorry. So, yeah, Pearl is part of the trilogy. Pearl actually makes X a better film after the fact. Pearl is great, and Pearl actually has... So Mia Goth has a monologue in it about her life and just the limitations of what she can expect from her life that is so brilliant. It's like, again, these are, this is not the sort of film that's going to get nominated for Oscars, but that is one of the best bits of acting I've seen this year. So, yeah, that was my 11 to 20. Yeah, I'm just kind of filtered by... I've got a, I've got a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, Lola uh, uh, would be in there, as would potentially The Master Gardener. One film which potentially would make my top 20, which I'm surprised wasn't in yours, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. How did I miss that? Sorry, my entire thing is now completely moved. <laughs> <laughs> How did I miss Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, even when I said it was going to be best animated? Okay, right. Well, okay, special mention to that. Somewhere in my top ten would be Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. That was... I mean, I didn't even like it as much as you did. I know, I fucking loved it. I actually saw that twice. Oh, but you can't just push it out and then say that goes in there, because, like, Jeff Canard on the film cast once said... If you take a film out and put another one in, it's like taking notes out of a score. It can't just be like a swap. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is a brilliant film. It would have been in my top ten somewhere. Oh. <laughs> that is a gut punch, that is. <laughs> but what else you got? Uh, talk to Me. Would oh, yeah. uh, Return to Soul. Uh, Night of the Twelfth. Uh, Nimona, which potentially would have been my favourite animated film. Oh, wow, Okay which I loved. It's a fantasy animation that's a bit, that's on Netflix uh, about this uh, kind of medieval kingdom, of, of high, high, most like a high-tech feudal kingdom in which this, uh, this knight, voiced by Riz Ahmed, is, uh, is framed for a crime and has to go on the run and encounters a sarky, anarchic shapeshifter who's voiced by Chloe Grace Moretz, who's the eponymous Nimona. Just brilliant. It's incredibly funny... It's a film that was shelved, wasn't it? And then was picked up by somebody else. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah, that's right. Spider-Man, of course, is also the other film that proves there is life in the superhero movie yet. Totally forgot about that. Well, George, let's have a look at what your list would have been like if you'd included Into the Spider-Verse. That was me trying to do Clarence from... I can't do the kind of cheery, bucolic angel voice, so... Yeah, well, that was like good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Rob, in true is a wonderful lifestyle. If you had included Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse on your top ten list, what would it have looked like? Well, thank you for this chance, Rob, to give me the opportunity to show what life would have been like if I had have included Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse in my top ten list. So top ten would have been, and actually now is, because this is the timeline that we're now living in. So number ten, Dungeons and Dragons. Number nine, Lola. Number eight, Talk to Me. Seven, Bottoms. Six, The Fablemans. Five, Tar. Four, M. Thregan. Three, May, December. Two, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> it ate at me last night. 
This is now the next morning, by the way, and I had to say, I'm sorry, but I just need to have another go. And Rob has given me the gift of seeing that come a reality. Yeah, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is a work of art. <laughs> a work of art in lots of different ways. Its animation style brings in so many different sorts of art, from comic book art to CGI to watercolours. It really is just a visual treat. I saw it twice on the big screen, haven't seen it on small screen yet, but I can't wait to do that. And Into the Spider-Verse was one of my films of the decade, and I thought this one might suffer from that we're gonna go dark, so therefore it's not gonna be as much fun and we're gonna get super serious and kind of spoil what was great about the first movie. It doesn't do that, even though it does go into a darker storyline in terms of what it means to be a hero, what it means to, to have accountability for the actions you do, particularly if you're outside of the law a little bit, it still keeps that wonder and that humor and that energy yeah, your number two was Passages, and my number two was Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So shout out to so many directors in this. To Joaquin Dos Santos, to Kemp Powers, to Justin K. Thompson. Different directors from the first movie. Phil Lord still oversaw this. I mean, there has been some controversy around the erratic way that he produced this film, and a lot of work that was created got junked. There was a lot of stress on set, or in the studios, apparently. But it is, as a film, I think is quite remarkable. So Shamik Moore, great as Miles Morales, and Hayley Steinfeld as Gwen Stacy, but we have Oscar Isaac is in this, he's one of the new cast members, but we have the cast members returning from the previous film. It has so many wonderful sequences in it, like the um, Spider-Man India sequence, and when they go into the Spider-Verse, and oh, I just adored it. And you quite liked it as well, didn't you? Yeah, I think it, yeah, it made my top 20. Yes. <laughs> Not mine originally. <laughs> Just the weirdest couldn't see the wood for the trees on that, because it really was like... Oh, and it was also, to provide some additional context to our listeners, on a screen in front of you. <laughs> yes, it was. It was on that. When we were talking about the box office and artistic achievement weird Golden Globe Award, it was one of those films. I was just looking at what we had to get through. I was looking at the notes on the podcast. You and said, you said wood, through, wood for the trees. Totally missed the fact that I had missed my number two film of the year. Mm. Interesting. So, yes, thank you for showing me that I really had a wonderful list after all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the it is Christmas. It is the time of miracles. So, yes... Thank you for that. Anything else to add? I'm trying to think of some variation on every time a bell rings, but I think that's just... Well, I think every time a film nerd gets to rearrange his list, a very close friend gets their wings. <laughs> Thank you for that. I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again! So yeah, also Full Time, another French film about the struggle of, of a mother basically trying to deal with the French transport, public transport to try and get to work each day. Oh, what wow. a fucking nightmare that is. And I actually watched it when I was in France and the train we were, we were going to get got delayed. So it's like... <laughs> um, it's not just the UK. Uh, Le Syndicalist, a fine movie. Uh, Dumb Money. Yes, that was a good one. Dream Scenario. I've yet to see. Anatomy of a Fool. Which I've yet to see. Femme. Yes, that was a good one. So the upshot is, there were some pretty good films released this year. <laughs> and other years, as it turns out. Yes, and other years for you and your... So was Sherlock Holmes Jr. the earliest film you saw this One year? of the earliest. It was in January. No, I mean, as in when it was made. Uh, no, it was, uh, actually, I'd never seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari before. Ah, oh, well, which is brilliant as well. So Mr. Wallace, thank you very much. And if people wanted to find you on the internet, where could they do that? Uh, yeah, if you're looking for me online, you, can, you can't find me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Robert M. Wallace. I... 
apparently have not been tagging these films in properly, so nobody's really... It, they're just kind of getting added to the pool. They're not coming up as the thing I've watched. Because um, you haven't put the dates that you watched. I know. I need to go. I need to go. <laughs> you need to diarise it. I need to, go, I need to go back and diarise it. It's one of, <laughs> it's one of my projects over Christmas break. Um, uh, you can find my writing, such as it's at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to this, uh, Mr. Dan and I do another podcast, have done another podcast called Another Time McLeod, which is a scene by scene analysis, general enjoyment of the 1986 cult classic Highlander. We've got some great guests on it. If you like 80s, fantasy or I mean we cover we cover a lot of stuff but yeah if, essentially if that sounds at all appealing please do check it out um, it's available to listen wherever you listen to this you can also drop us a Highlander themed email which we gladly received at mcleodtime at gmail.com cool and yeah if you want to find me online then you can do that on Letterboxd that's letterboxd.com slash robdan I'm on Instagram at robdan75 and you can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. And if you want to follow the podcast, then you can do that on Twitter. It is still on Twitter at MovieRobcast. It is on Instagram at TheMovieRobcast. If you want to drop us an email about movies, you can do that at MovieRobcast at gmail.com. And if you've liked what you've heard and want to leave us a star rating and or review, well, we're not going to stop you. It is always much appreciated. It helps us with the algorithms and stuff like that. So, yes, the only other thing to say is... Have a Merry Christmas and have a Happy New Year and try and watch some amazing movies. I think we've recommended quite a few. And yes, thank you very much. And thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. And we'll be back with you in 2024. We will. What is it exactly that you bring to this? I'm a planner. I make plans. You've already made the plan, so... If the existing plan fails, I make a new plan. So you make plans that fail? No. He also plays the loot. Stop! Don't! Make it! You should probably run. You created a fight club to get some coochie. You don't even know how to work that thing. I know y'all ain't tickling the pearl. I just don't know if you're supposed to be talking to us like that, just like as a teacher. 